You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. We said that one of the big themes of this letter to the church at Thessalonica is the coming deception on this earth. This future deception that is coming that is motivated by Satan where he will eventually allow uh, through his empowerment a man to, to rise who will... Uh, lead this earth into deception, believing that this man is God and deserves the uh, respect and the worship that only belongs to Christ, and that all of that will happen according to God's plan, which is the hope for the believer, that there's no evil that is permitted to happen that God is not first aware of and that God does not also allow to happen and allows it to happen at the exact perfect right time for him to receive the maximum amount of glory. So there's a coming antichrist, a man of lawlessness who will deceive this earth into sin, but it's in accordance with Jesus's plan. It's in accordance with his plan so that he receives glory and honor when he returns and his people worship him. And, uh, he comes to bring relief to his children. He comes to bring vengeance on those who have been persecuting his children. So this coming deception, Paul tells the church to be aware of it, even though he comforts them, provides hope to them that you will make it. You will not be deceived. You will persevere. He also constantly challenges them to make it, to persevere, to hold fast to the truth that he has passed on to them. So we described the deception that was coming in chapter two. And at the end of chapter 2 and now on into chapter 3, we've been talking about Paul's admonishment to this church to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm in the faith. And so you see in your notes there how to avoid deception. We've talked about how we must believe the truth. We must believe the truth. We must be uh, the type of people who accept the faith. So that we will stand firm. We must hold to the truth. We must be defenders of the faith. We must stand firm as a church family. We must also practice the truth. We must be demonstrators of the faith. We must strive to stand firm as a church family. We also said that we must share the truth. We must communicate the faith. We must help others to stand firm. And we talked last week about how the gospel must speed ahead from our church, that we must be faithful to communicate it, to share it. And then we come today to number five, we must reflect the truth. We must be examples of faith. And Paul goes even so far as to say we must remove some in our church family so that we will stand firm. We must remove people from our church family at times to ensure that the rest of us will stand firm. And we'll see in a minute what he means by that. Looking back to last week, though, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that, are you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, and to the steadfastness of Christ. We talked about the responsibility of prayer last week and how we are told to pray, to pray for the gospel to advance. Paul tells his uh, new believers to pray for him, that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored 
as it happened in this church at Thessalonica. And so we highlighted the fact that, that prayer is such an important ingredient to the church being built. That Paul calls on young believers to pray that he will be faithful in sharing the gospel clearly and effectively. We said it's a, it's a, a point of humility by Paul to call on younger believers to pray for the pro to be good at sharing the gospel. The guy who, who writes the New Testament predominantly, the guy who plants churches all over, he's calling on young believers, new believers, to pray for him that he'll remain faithful to share a clear gospel. He says, pray that it'll happen in these people like it happened in you. Pray that they will receive it the way that you receive it. So prayer is such a crucial, important ingredient to the gospel going out. But we highlighted the fact that it's ultimately Jesus who gets the glory for the gospel going out. That it's God who makes the path for the gospel straight. It's God who removes the obstacles and the hindrances. It's God who clears the way for the gospel to work. So we have the responsibility to be faithful to take the gospel, but ultimately it's God who allows the gospel to be effective. It's God who clears the path. It's God who, who removes any hindrances that Satan would seek to throw at the gospel. And we illustrated it by, by comparing uh, the work of God in the gospel to a football play. And I showed you how when our football play at Trinity is executed properly, nobody can stop it. That every blocking assignment works in such a way where the way is fully cleared. It doesn't matter who you put at the running back position, they will score. That nothing can stop, and it doesn't matter who you put there. It doesn't matter who you put there because the, the goal is for all these blockers to clear the way, and it's set up in such a way that they will. And you can stick whoever you want to in that position, and they will speed ahead. And so God clears the way, and so he can use any of us. It doesn't matter our abilities. He can use any of us to take the gospel, to allow the gospel to speed ahead through our legs because he's the one that's going to clear the path. He's the one that's going to make sure that it's effective and that it works. So we highlighted the fact that God gets the glory once again for any salvation that comes from a local church. And now we come to verse 6. Paul begins to wrap up his encouragement for how to avoid deception. And he gives strong encouragement to this local church that in order to avoid deception, they need to work hard. They need to work hard. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Avoiding deception, working hard. There was a problem in this church that Paul had to address. Something had caused these people to reject work. So the problem within this church is that they were rejecting work. They were rejecting hard labor. They were rejecting the responsibilities of going to work and doing their job. Now, we're not told exactly what led them to reject this work. We don't know if, if it was simply thoughts of the second coming. 
and that Jesus was coming back soon, so we should quit our jobs and we should get ready for the return of Jesus. We don't know if these people just simply hated to work. I mean, it may have just been that they looked at their job now that they were Christians and they were like, I want to be doing something different. Like, this doesn't fulfill me. This doesn't bring satisfaction to me. I don't like what I do, so I hate it. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop, and I'm going to allow other people in the church to fund my lifestyle. Or it may have just simply been laziness. These guys were lazy. They just didn't like to work. It wasn't that they hated their jobs. It's just they didn't want to work any job. Just lazy people that wanted to sit around and be paid for their laziness. It doesn't really matter what led them to reject the work. It doesn't change how we interpret this passage. Um, it doesn't change how we apply the passage. What we simply need to understand is that there was a problem, that these people had decided to stop working. At least some in the church had decided to stop working. They were turning from honest, hard work, and they were using their time to do other things. In your notes there, who was causing the problem? Paul identifies these individuals as those who were walking in idleness. The idle people are the problem here. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. He calls them the idle. This word uh, for idleness in the Greek, it can mean disorderly, unruly. Paul also identifies them later on in verse 11 as busybodies. We've talked about this word before. It also means out of line or out of rank. It can be a military term. It's someone who's, who's broken rank, someone who has gotten out of the line. And so it's appropriate for Paul to follow up with military terms when he gives commands to these individuals. He commands these people that have broken rank. They, they've, they've deviated from their superior officer's previous commands. Now more commands are needed to be given to these people to get them back into walking the way that they're supposed to walk. It's people that weren't necessarily doing nothing. It would be wrong for us to assume that these guys were lazy to the point that all they were doing was sitting on the couch and entertaining themselves there at their homes. They're not people that are just completely lazy and doing nothing. It's that they were working hard at the wrong things. He calls them busybodies. He says it's not that you're completely inactive. It's just that you're busy with the wrong things. You're busy doing things that aren't what you should be doing. They had too much time on their hands. And typically when that happens, Satan would like to use it to create disunity. In 1 Timothy 5, we get a glimpse of another group of people who may have been guilty of the same thing, and it may shed a little bit of light on what was going on here at Thessalonica. 1 Timothy chapter 5 they were dealing with an issue of how to take care of individuals in the church as well. How do we use our benevolent fund in a sense? How do we take care of people? And so there was conversation going on about basically how to write their policy. And in 1 Timothy 5 verse 11 it says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. 
for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul's instructing Timothy about how to handle people that are in need in the church. And he says, if you're not careful, you're going to enable people to have too much time on their hands. If someone comes under the support of the church, they're going to have time available because they're not working a job. And Satan will seek to use that as an opportunity to breed disunity in the church. Too much time on their hands, these people become gossips. They become busybodies. They become busy doing the wrong type of things. And it starts to rip up the church. And it becomes a burden to the church because they're supporting people that don't really need it. If this woman has somebody in her family that can take care of her, the family should be taking care of her. And if she's young enough to where she's still uh, of maritable age, then she needs to get married. Or really make a full commitment to being a servant in the church. Because what was happening and what the danger was is that these people would commit to the church and then some guy would come along and then they would break their commitment to the church, whatever service they had committed to do, and say, ah, I think I'm going to go back to being a stay-at-home mom. I'm getting married again. And it would cause frustration because it was like, hey, you, you had agreed to do this. We were supporting you and now we're not getting a return on our investment. You said you would be here and now you're not. So he says, I encourage them to get married. Get someone from their family. They need to, they need to pursue being supported in that way. Because if not, they have too much time on their hands. They're still young. They're still active. And Satan will use that to bring or to breed disunity within the church. So we see an element there of idleness where it's not that they are completely inactive. It's that they're active doing the wrong things. It's also talking about people that have chosen not to work. It's people who are unwilling to work. These aren't people who are unable to work or have fallen on hard times. It's a question of willingness. So we don't come to this passage today and say that there's, you know, as we've been talking about the long family, it's not that there's an issue with Adam. I mean, Adam, if you've had a chance to talk with him about what they're going through, he has such an incredible desire to work. We saw that desire to work. Um, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before where he was, he was working a crazy schedule at night. I mean, he was working uh, just an insane amount of hours to pay off some debt and to pay off some different things in their family. So the man has demonstrated a desire to work. So our church can come beside him and support that family right now because it's not a question of willingness. It's a question of is there work or is there not work? So Paul's not addressing someone who is simply not working and he can't find work or he's unable to work. It's someone who says, I don't like the jobs that are being offered to me. I don't like any of them. That's not what I want to do. So I'm going to keep holding out and waiting for that perfect job, that one that will bring me all kinds of fulfillment. That's the one that becomes the issue for the church. It's the one that should not be supported by the church. We know that Scripture does tell us that when people within our church family fall upon hard times, that we are to support them. James 2, 14 through 17 what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We're also told in 1 John 3, Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need 
yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we identify people like the longs who are in need and we help them because we've got the world's goods. It would be silly for us to tell them to go and, and buy food at the grocery store without, without enabling them to be able to do so. So Paul's not addressing the individual who's simply not working. It's a specific type of non-worker. It's the one who simply does not want to work. Ultimately, these individuals are not holding to the traditions of God's word. In chapter 2, he told them to stand firm, to hold to the traditions of God's word, and these people are not doing that because they've rejected Paul's previous teaching on this. He's already instructed them about this. This isn't new information that Paul's giving. He's not writing to them and saying, hey, as Christians, you guys should work. Don't be lazy. Don't be idle. Work. He's already told them this. He's already told them this. If you see in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So Paul says, from day one, discipleship, when we, when we led you guys to Christ, we were teaching you this from day one. Then, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, Paul gave them a gentle reminder about this as well. In 1 first, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this issue was clearly prevalent there at the beginning. And Paul felt it necessary to address hard work in his discipleship with them. He commanded them this from day one. Then when he writes his first letter, he says, okay, this is still a problem. This is not improved. This is not where it should be. Let me remind you, work with your hands. Don't be dependent on other people. You guys are capable of providing for yourself. Do it. Do it so you look good to the outside world. Don't be a moocher. Don't be a leech. Don't be a parasite. Don't take from other people. You work for yourself. It's still not getting through to them. They're still not holding to this tradition, which why he comes to 2 Thessalonians 3 and has to address it once again. How does Paul address this problem? He identifies it and he addresses it. He addresses it by commanding. Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul issues commands on the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord, which means we have a responsibility to obey it. He's not offering advice. He's not offering suggestions. He's saying you have to do this. This isn't what I would do if I was you. This is you have to do this. This comes from Jesus. I mentioned to you last week, this is the great commission task. We're to teach others what Christ has commanded us to do. We teach them on his authority. The commands come from a superior officer. We need to be reminded of that when we're discipling others, especially young believers who maybe aren't turning from sin like they need to. They're allowing things to linger in their life. They need to be reminded, this isn't a suggestion. This isn't what I think you should do. This comes from a superior officer. This comes from Lord Jesus Christ. I had one commentator mention the fact that we need to get more serious about calling Jesus maybe by his full title and authority. It's interesting. If you read the Gospels in the book of Acts, he's mostly referred to as Jesus. But after that, in the rest of the New Testament, I did a search. It's unbelievable to see that most of the time, Lord is attached to Jesus everywhere else in the New Testament. And it may be because Jesus comes across a little too human for us at times. That he's a nice guy that we've heard stories about. He's a good example to follow if you want to. 
there's something formal. I even feel formal when I say Lord Jesus Christ up here. Like it's not natural because we don't say that. We say Jesus. You need to worship Jesus. You need to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe become more impactful, impactful with our children if we started referring to Jesus as Lord who demands our submission. It's the name that was given to him. Philippians 2.11, the name above all names is not Jesus. There's people all over the world today that have the name Jesus. It can be translated Joshua as well. It's a common name. It's a common human name. The name that is given to Jesus that's above all names is Lord. It's at the name of Lord that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This comes from Lord Jesus Christ, that you work hard. Not just Jesus that you've heard stories about. Lord Jesus, commanding officer. You submit to him. You be obedient to him. And we can speak with that authority because it's not our word. It's his. This isn't our advice. This is Jesus' instruction to us. So Paul commands with that kind of authority. He gives two commands here. The first command is not to the idol workers. Notice this. The command at first is to the people that are doing things right. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Command number one is hard workers remove the idol. Hard workers remove the the idol. Paul tells these church members to withhold intimate fellowship from these type of people until they make it right. If they're not willing to work, you disassociate with them. By intimate fellowship, I mean don't allow those in sin to enjoy the same fellowship you give to the dedicated saints. It shows approval of their sin. That's the essence of church discipline is that we don't show the same type of fellowship to individuals who are in habitual sin that we do to people that are dedicated saints. It's confusing. It's confusing to them. It's confusing to the lost world. It's confusing to me when I see other churches tolerate sin in their church, let people sing on Sundays that are in habitual sin that I know of and everybody in leadership knows about it. And you look at it and you say, why would you allow that to happen in your church? It's confusing. These people are making willful, sinful decisions. And you're letting them go on and function in life with you in fellowship like nothing's happened. Church discipline is given to the church to make sure that we maintain a good testimony to the outsiders. And it's meant to make sure that we maintain a firm foundation for people that are truly believers in the church. If we allow sin to be tolerated then we allow deception to creep into our church and then people stop standing firm. They start getting led away into this deception, led away into this sin. Paul says, don't tolerate this. You, you withdraw yourself from these people. You disassociate yourself with these people. Keep away from is what he tells them. It means to avoid, to shun, to pull back from, to make them feel out of place. You communicate to them that there's an issue. Paul goes on to say, don't let them eat. So the command is disassociate from them and then don't feed them. Don't take care of their needs. Don't enable them in their laziness. Don't enable them in their idleness. There's a really good verse in um, Proverbs 16, 26. 
that gives us some instruction about this. Proverbs 16:26 says, "A worker's appetite works for him; his mouth urges him on." Basically, that proverb saying, "If if a person gets hungry enough, they'll work." A person will be motivated by their appetite. He's saying if the church enables people in their laziness and idleness, part of the responsibility is on the church. They're keeping these guys from getting hungry enough to work. They're enabling them. They're allowing them to stay in this pitiful condition where they can't support themselves. He says, you you make them get hungry enough and they'll work. Don't feed them. Don't feed these type of individuals. The command... To this group of people is just as strong to those that are living wrong. The command to the good people is just as strong as to the ones that are living in sin. The mandate for church discipline is serious. We want to be a church that takes church discipline serious. And it's not always easy. At times it creates awkward situations where sin has to be confronted. But we have to realize that Lord Jesus Christ has commanded us to disassociate with some types of people when they refuse to repent. Now remember, this isn't the first time he's brought this up with these people. So it's not, hey, these people are idle, you should get rid of them. Nope, they rejected the teaching from day one. New believers that refused to turn from sin from the very beginning. They continued to refuse it when it was taught in the first letter. So these guys have been warned and double warned. And now he's saying, withdraw intimate fellowship from them. Get their attention. Don't let them continue in this state. The only way they're continuing in this state is because you're enabling them. You're supporting them. You're giving them the opportunity to stay in this condition. Church discipline keeps them from staying in this condition. It makes them make a decision. Church discipline makes you make a decision about sin. Do I want sin or do I want Jesus? When a church doesn't practice church discipline, it allows somebody to choose both, theoretically. I'm going to keep Jesus and all the benefits of fellowship that come with being a follower of Jesus, but I'm also going to keep all the benefits of my sin and the sin that I get to enjoy. Church discipline says, make a decision. Do you want sin or do you want Jesus? Things that we're told to discipline for in Scripture, personal sins, sins against one another, doctrinal error, Titus 3.10 talks about repeat troublemakers in the church. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about open immorality. These are things that should not be tolerated. And we add to the list those who will not work. For the gospel to speed ahead, sin within the church cannot be allowed to slow it down. Remember, this instruction comes on the heels of Paul saying, pray that the gospel will speed ahead. Now he gives them instructions. In order for it to speed ahead, you guys have got to work. You guys have got to be a good testimony. By being idlers and busybodies, you are withholding the gospel from speeding ahead the way that it needs to. The implication is that a believer should cherish the fellowship of other believers to where the threat of losing it should help guard us against sin. A believer should cherish the fellowship with other believers that the threat of losing that fellowship helps protect against the deceitfulness of sin. I don't want to go there because I don't want to lose my fellowship with other believers because I know my church takes it serious. And if I make a willful decision to stay in sin, I will lose all the fellowship that I have in my local church. 
It should be so precious to a believer that the threat of losing that is serious and it protects us from the deceitfulness of sin. The command number two that Paul gives us, busybodies, start minding your business. Busybodies, start minding your business. He tells them in verse 11 and 12, we hear that some of we, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Work hard, be content with your own bread is really what he's saying there. You work hard and you be content with your own living. Be content with what you're given. Don't mooch off of others. Work hard, be content. Earn your own living. Now, that, all, that doesn't mean that, that Paul's encouraging everybody to do their own thing and to withhold funds for other people. In Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul tells them in, in Ephesus that they need to work so hard that they have an abundance to share with others that are in need. But that's not the problem here. The problem is, is that you guys are, are taking advantage of the sharing. And so he calls them to work hard and to strive to earn their own living to where they don't need the help of other people. To where they don't need it. But as believers, as Christians, we should be working hard in such a way that we do have an abundance to give to those who genuinely need it. People that are working hard, striving to earn their own living, but maybe are coming up short because of circumstances in their life. That that abundance is available for them, not for people who have simply chosen not to work. All right, a theology of work now that I think that Paul gives us here in chapter 3. We're going to look at the example that Paul sets here. A theology of work in light of Christ's return. Why should a Christian work well? Because I believe that Paul's not just simply calling them to work hard. I believe he's telling them to work well. To work in a way that is excellent from the perspective of unbelievers. I think the first reason that he gives is the creation mandate. The creation mandate. There's a creation mandate given to mankind that we are to work if we are going to survive. That we have a responsibility to work if we want to eat. Paul appeals to that by saying, if he's not willing to work, don't let him eat. It's an appeal to the creation mandate. It's a mandate that unbelievers understand. If I want to eat, I'm going to have to work. It's crucial to remember when we think about work in relationship to God's creation that work is not a result of the fall. It's not a result of the fall. Instead, work is cursed because of the fall. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God's creating everything really good. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Work was given to Adam before sin entered into the world. So it's a mistake to think that there's coming a day when work will stop and we'll just get to sit around and be lazy and idle all the time for eternity. I don't believe that's coming. 
I believe there's coming a day when Jesus comes to fix everything and he restores us to the right situation where work is not cursed. It's meant to be what it was supposed to be for us. We were created to work. We were created to serve. We were created to bring glory to God through that. Adam chooses to sin. God says, I'm now going to make your work hard. You're still responsible for taking care of the land, but now it's going to be hard. It's going to reject your leadership. Just like the woman now rejects his leadership in a marriage, and she has to fight to submit to her husband, the land rejects Adam's leadership. It grows thorns and thistles, and he has to fight against it to earn his living. Work's not part of the fall. The cursed work is part of the fall. It's important to remember that, that that God always intended for man to work. It's part of the creation mandate. He was to work if he wanted to eat. Genesis three seventeen through 19. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In God's goodness, he still allows the ground to return food to Adam. It's cursed, but it still works. He can still work to eat. It's just harder now. There's pain involved in it. But by God's grace, he still allows man to work so that he can eat. So work was part of God's good creation. We should live in line with God's creative order. Paul's telling the church to live the way God created you. He created you to work so that you can eat. The church should show how things are supposed to be. The church should be a demonstration of how good hard work allows us to reap the benefits of our labor. Psalm 128.2. Psalm 128.2 says, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. This is how God designed creation. He designed for us to work in such a way that we reap the benefits of our labor, that we have enough to take care of ourselves. We have enough to make a living for ourselves. It's not a Christian thing. It's a creation thing. We see this in first Timothy chapter five. This isn't a Christian perspective on work. This is a a, a way that creation works. First Timothy chapter five, going back to that whole, who should we help? Who should we not help? Verse 8, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What he's saying there is that even unbelievers understand their responsibility to work and provide for people in their family. Even unbelievers understand that they should work for a living to take care of themselves so they can eat. It's not a Christian thing. It's a creation thing. God has created us to work to eat. It's a creation mandate. We need to understand that as Christians who get weary in our work at times. Who grow weary at the beginning of a week when we know we've got five days of work ahead of us. And it's going to be a struggle at times. It's going to be painful at times. We're going to be tired. It's going to cause stress in our life. It's going to cause stress in our marriage and our families. We need to recognize up front. Part of what I'm doing this week is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's the way that God designed it and created it. It's hard because of sin. But to think that work is supposed to go away completely, it's a false assumption. 
to the point that one commentator even said that if we knew, if we knew that Jesus was coming back next month, we should still continue to go to our jobs every day. See, my thought would be, well, quit the job like it doesn't matter anymore. He's coming back. I got enough in my pantry to eat until he comes back. No, like you were created to work. So you don't get to slack off for 30 days knowing that Jesus is coming. He says, you keep going to work. You do your job. You do it well because that's the way God created you. It's what he's given you. It's the task that he's placed upon you. It's a creation mandate. The implication for us, we must fight laziness and perform good work. If we're saying that work is supposed to be good and we now are tempted to be lazy because it's hard, we've got to fight against that laziness. All through the book of Proverbs, it condemns the lazy man. So we must fight laziness and continue to perform good work. The application is, what will I do to encourage others and receive encouragement I need in my work? Man, if we're admitting that, that work is good, but that it's hard, and there's the possibility that we will grow idle in it, there's a mandate for us in the church to get together with each other and constantly encourage one another in our work. I would encourage y'all that are in the same field, if possible, to encourage one another in your labor. You guys understand the, the nuances of your job and how it can be difficult at times to do it well. So guys that work at corporate Chick-fil-A, they can work together and say, hey, let's encourage each other. I know it's hard. We get up at the same time. It's difficult, but let's do it well. People that are in the nursing field, let's do it well. Let's do it right. I know it gets discouraging. I know it's hard to do it this way, but let's do it well. People that are in the teaching industry, let's do it well. Let's do it right. Let's encourage one another. Be sensitive to the fact that other people are doing what you're doing. Sometimes, we, again, we, we talked about this before. We get this, this me perspective of, man, my life is so hard. My work is so hard. My schedule is so hard. And we want to elevate it as though I'm more busy than everybody else. My job is harder than everybody else. And yet at the end of the week, we're all tired. We all feel like we had a busy week. We can encourage each other by leaning on each other and fighting against laziness, fighting against the temptation to possibly become idle. These people in this church weren't fighting against it like they needed to, and some had fallen into this. The creation mandate. Secondly, others' protection. The other reason that Paul gives us for working hard is for the protection of others. He gives them his example for why he does things that he does. He says in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul's got an example and he tells us to follow it. He says, I was the example of how to work hard in your midst. He said, I did it for two reasons. One, I wanted to set an example that you could follow after I left, that you could refer back and say, hey, Paul did it, we can do it. He set a good example for how to work hard and be a Christian. But he said, I also did it so that I wouldn't be a burden to any of you, so that I wouldn't take from you. 
He says, not that I didn't have the right to. Because even Jesus, even Lord Jesus says that it's appropriate for a minister, a full-time minister to be paid for his ministry. Paul says, I had the right to demand it of you. I could have demanded that you fund me completely. He says, I didn't do it. I didn't do it because I wanted to set an example to you. And I wanted to put your needs above my own needs. I didn't want to be a burden to you. I didn't want to take from you. I didn't want to take I didn't want your budget to take a hit to support me. That's what Paul says. He says, so you can follow my example now. He says, I didn't eat any bread without working for it, without paying for it. We talked about this way back. There was a problem in that culture with some preachers being all about the money. They were traveling around, reaping the benefits of their ministry, charging and overcharging people for their teaching. And some people have started to develop this perspective that, man, they're just all about the money. They just want your money. It's probably not too far off from what our culture feels about pastors a lot of times. They just want your money. They only do it because it's an easy job that gets them paid. That's the perspective a lot of times. And for some people, they take advantage of it. I went to school with kids that were going to youth, going into youth ministry. And they had no biblical reason for going into youth ministry. It was, man, you get paid to do lock-ins and play games and prepare a 10-minute devotion. Why would I not do that job? They were in it for the money. They were lazy, idle, busybody people looking for an easy payout. And that's the reputation that a lot of pastors have, is that are just in it for the money. Paul says, I'm not like other pastors. I don't want your money. Paul laid aside his rights of payment for the good of others. He did not want to be a burden. Now he's saying, you that are idle, you have no right to claim payment, and yet you're insisting on it. He says, I had every right, and I gave it up. You have absolutely no right. You better give it up. You don't have any right to claim payment from these people. So stop it. Stop doing it. Go back to work. Be content with your own living. Paul chose to demonstrate what a committed life to Christ should look like for all believers. Again, he had every right to claim it. Galatians 6.6. 6. Sometimes it's awkward to talk about pastors being paid. It's biblical. Galatians 6.6. 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So the one who's teaching the word should be reaping benefits from the one that he is teaching it to. Good things should be shared with the teacher. More specifically, 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This would apply to a teaching elder. He's worthy of double honor. 1 Corinthians 9, blatantly specific. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He says, who goes into the military without getting paid? Nobody. Some people go into the military because of the benefits of pay and the, the, the college payments that come from it. He says, a soldier doesn't go into the military without being paid. Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? 
Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the ground. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that all those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul says, I have every right to claim this, but I'm willingly giving it up. He said, I didn't want it when I was with you. I didn't want to be a burden to you, and I wanted to set an example for you. Now, for me, and this is where it comes into what we talked about this morning about expectations placed specifically on me. If we take these verses the way that I believe they're to be taken, then we could say that I have every right to to earn my living as a pastor of this church. Especially those who teach and preach worthy of double honor. Like I have the right for this to be my job. I have the right for this to be my employment. I have the right to not have to work another job. I have a right to invest everything that I have right here and to reap the benefits as this church grows, as the giving grows, to reap the benefits of that as well. I have every right to do that, Paul says. Paul says, I gave it up. I gave it up because I felt like it was better for you. Paul realized hard work was an issue for his church. So he said, I'm going to work a regular job because I feel like hard work is an issue for you guys. And I'm going to show you how to do it. Now, the difficulty with this passage is I don't think this is really a problem in our church. I don't think we have people who aren't working very hard. Like sometimes when you prepare to teach, you have people in your mind. You're like, I hope they're here to hear this because this is specifically for them. Like they need to get this. It's not the case with this passage. Like, I think you guys know how to work hard. I don't think you guys are idle. I don't think you guys are are busybodies. I don't think you guys are trying to mooch off other people. Paul said, the issue with you guys is you don't work hard, so I'm going to show you how to work. For me, I'm just being honest, I think the issue for our church is how do we take hard workers and help them figure out the balance of following Jesus passionately When your schedule looks like it's full. How do I find time to do all the things that we talk about in this church? Discipling other believers. Meeting with believers for accountability. Being in the word on my own. Shepherding my family. How do I do all those things when my work week is slammed? I don't have any free time to do that kind of stuff. Paul says, I'm giving up my right to show you how to do this. And that's been my perspective from day one here is that I don't ever have any intention of being a full-time pastor here and reaping a full-time salary. Because my desire is, one, not to be a burden to any of you, to where we have to sit around as a budget guy and talk about, hey, we need more giving because Adam's salary is this and we ain't got enough to pay him this month. I don't ever want my family to have to rely on you guys to support us. 
But secondly, my desire is to set an example for how to work a job, a regular hard job, do it well, but then also show you how to follow Jesus and invest in a local church and it not take away from everything else. I've got to be that example for the men in this church so that it filters all the way down to everybody in this church. I want to be the example of how to work a job hard and do it right and do it well. And then show you how you can also disciple believers, have time with your kids, invest in your wife. Now, I don't think I'm at the point where I can say, hey, come follow this example because I'm doing it dead on right. But that's where I want to be. And that's why I'm kind of evaluating things in my life. What needs to stay? What needs to go? What are fair expectations for me to put on myself in all the hats that I have to wear in my life right now? But like Paul, I want to set aside that right to set an example for people in this church. Some reasons that I don't ever want to be full-time at Sovereign Hope. I want to set an example of excellent work at a normal job. I don't want to be viewed as wanting your money. I don't want to be lumped in with other pastors in our culture who are just out to take a paycheck from a church. I don't want that reputation. I want to work a normal job, and show you how to do it in an excellent way. It also helps me fight pride in my own life. It keeps me humble because with this schedule, I can't do everything. If I was a full-time pastor reaping a full-time salary, I wouldn't need most of you guys to be doing anything. Because honestly, there's not a whole lot that we would have to do during the week for a full-time pastor. I mean, if we were to sit down and write a job description for what I would do during the week, there's really not that much that would have to be done on a weekly basis. We don't have an office for me to come to, so I can't put in office hours. Most of you guys work during the day, so I can't hang out with you during the day. So there's not a ton of weekly responsibilities that I would have to handle. So I certainly wouldn't need anybody else handling any responsibilities. So it keeps me humble. It reminds me that part of my job as a pastor is to equip people to do the work of the ministry. It makes it necessary when I don't have time to do everything. It also is important to set an example of serving Christ faithfully with limited time. I don't want to put a burden on you that I haven't also accepted myself. I don't want to put a burden on you guys that I haven't also put upon myself to say that I go to a job, I go to a job, I work hard during the week, I take care of my family, I spend time with my kids, but I'm also committed to following Jesus in the midst of all that. And I'm committed to investing in the lives of others, discipling other believers. I want to do it in a way where I can show you guys how to be in the word faithfully during the week. I know I talk with you guys and you guys, you know, you tell me my schedule's full. Like I don't have time to do these things. And I want to be able to refer to my own example and say, yes, you can. You can be in the word faithfully. You can serve your family. You can spend time with your kids. You can disciple Christians. You can build gospel relationships with unbelievers. That's the example that I want to set. Now, I have to be careful that I don't obviously drop the ball in some areas. A frustration of mine is that I don't want to simply work a job. I don't want to work at Trinity. I don't want to do, and and I was talking with Ben this week, I don't want to do just enough at Trinity to keep my job. 
because I wouldn't want any of you guys to work that way at your job. Meaning I wouldn't want you to do just enough to get by. I've fallen prey to that sometimes. I do just enough to get a paycheck from Trinity so that I can do what I'm supposed to do, and that's pastor sovereign hope. And I've, I've been thinking about that over the last couple of weeks. I wouldn't want Ben to work his job that way. I wouldn't want Ben to just do enough to not get fired so that he can come home, be with his family, and invest in this church. Because our perspective has always been like, man, the, the, the workplace is where the gospel goes out. Like, you need to be building relationships at your work. So I want to not only just work good enough at my job, I want to go above and beyond my duties at Trinity. Because I want you guys to go above and beyond your duties at your work. I want you to make your work, your job, a better place because you're there. Because you're not just there to get a paycheck. You're there to serve the people that are part of your, your company. I want to be able to set that type of example. Why do we work well? It's a creation mandate. We do it for the protection of others. We do it for gospel advancement. Number three, gospel advancement. The way that we work should adorn the gospel that we strive to share. The way that we work should adorn the gospel. It should make the gospel look better. It should make the gospel look believable. If you're sharing a gospel with somebody that you work with and they know you do everything half-hearted, you do everything to get by, you don't do anything excellent, it messes up the gospel that you're trying to share. First Thessalonians 4.12, Paul told his church this. He says, Live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So that you set a good testimony, a good example. We ought to work well, excellent, to the best of our ability so that we become salt and light with our co-workers. Our work ethic should not hinder the advancement of the gospel. Ephesians 6 Verses 5 through 7 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Paul tells these people to work like they're working for God, not their, their human masters. He says, don't be people pleasers. You work like God has assigned you this job. And that's what's been convicting for me as I've evaluated how I do at Trinity. If I'm honest with myself, I do enough a lot of times to get by. I teach in such a way that I'm not always concerned about lives being changed like I am when I teach you guys. I study enough to get by. I teach enough to get by. I look to get home as soon as possible. As soon as my obligations are done, I'm gone. I'm out of there. I'm not, com- I'm not committed to building relationships with my coworkers. I'm not committed with what's going on in their life to serve them and help meet those needs. I'm gone. As soon as the bell rings, I'm out of there. And that's convicting because that's not the example that I would want to set for you guys. If I'm committed to working a job rightly so that you guys know how to work a job 
and follow Jesus, then I've got to work that job excellently. Some of you guys ask, why do you, why do you coach? Like, why do you spend time coaching? That takes away time from what you could be doing for Sovereign Hope. That means you can't meet with as many people as you could meet with if you weren't obligated to be there coaching. I jotted down some, some reasons just so that we can be clear because coaching season's coming back up for me at Trinity, and I want us to understand why I do this. One, it certainly has to do with money. Lauren and I would love to have another child. I'm going to be honest with you. It cost about $3,500 to have AJ. Most of us don't have an extra thirty-five just sitting around every year from our salary. So as me and Lauren talk about having children, we also know that that comes at a financial expense towards us. There's doctor bills that have to be paid. As good as our insurance is, they want a lot of money for us to have a baby. And so I have to be proactive in planning because I certainly don't want to be a burden to any of you guys. I don't want to have to say, hey, we had another baby, um, and that costs a lot of money, and we didn't really plan for that, so we need, to, we need help. Could some of y'all help us out with our medical bills? Now, obviously, medical bills come up that you weren't prepared for, but when I know, hey, we'd like to have a child, then that means I've got to be intentional about planning financially for that. So certainly part of the reason that I coach at Trinity is for the money aspect. But it's also to serve the people at my job. Honestly, I'm not real valuable to Trinity in and of myself and my degree. Most all the other teachers teach multiple subjects, and they can move around subjects when there's a need for it. So if there's a need for a science teacher, most of them that are teaching another subject can easily move into science because their degree allows it. My job's good for one thing, teaching Bible. I'm the only teacher that teaches only Bible. All the other Bible teachers teach other subjects. So I've got to make myself valuable to my school so that I don't become expendable when cuts come around. I've got to work hard so that I am useful to my school. I would want you guys to work hard to better yourself so that you're more valuable to the companies that you work for. Because if we're supposed to work to the Lord, that's the perspective that we would have. If we're not just trying to please our employer, but please God in the way that we work, then it changes the perspective that we have at work. I could keep doing what I'm doing and please a lot of my superiors at Trinity. I mean, I get rave reviews from them. Man, we're so glad we have you. You're so good at what you do. And I hear those things in the back of my mind. I'm thinking, oh, man, like I don't work as hard as I should for you guys. I know that. You think I'm doing a good job, but I could do a lot better than what I'm doing. That's not the example that I want to set for you. The last reason that I coach is for missional opportunities. Coaching allows me to connect with my students and with the families of my students in a way that I never would if I was just strictly in the classroom. When I evaluated as I was sitting there, why do I coach? The big reason that I coach is because if Ben was teaching at Trinity and me and him were meeting, I'd be like, Ben, why are you not coaching? Why don't you use that as an opportunity to get into the lives of some of these families that are a part of that school? Why don't you use that as an opportunity to to get your students outside the classroom and talk with them about the gospel? You might see people come to Christ because you're investing in a different way at your company, at your school. I'm choosing to do the things that I do at Trinity because I want to set an example. I want it to be the way that I would expect you to work at your jobs. That it's done in an excellent way. Not just to get a paycheck. Because we're not just working to please humans. 
we're working because it's part of the creation mandate. We're working so that we're not a burden to other people. We're working to advance the gospel. And you have such an incredible opportunity to share the gospel with people that you see every day at your work. If you're not doing it excellent there, why do it excellent anywhere? If I can't be excellent at Trinity, it doesn't matter if I'm excellent as the pastor of Sovereign Hope. I've failed in my gospel opportunity, my job. I've got to be faithful there. All work should be viewed as spiritual and not secular. Too often we categorize jobs as secular jobs and ministry jobs. At 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us the opposite. That whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. Our application for today, we wrap up with this. Am I setting a good example of being busy with the right things? I don't think you guys are lazy. I don't think you guys are idle. I know you guys are busy. I know you guys work hard. But are we doing it to the degree that we need to, to where we're a good example to others? We should surround ourselves with good examples of people who work hard and serve Jesus faithfully. Now, going back to this chart. I don't think that there is anything on this chart that I would not expect to be true of every man in this church. Not only do I want to set the example for what it means to work a job and work it well, I want to set an example for what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of working a hard job. Which means my expectations for me, I want them to be the same expectations that I would place on any guy in this church, any member of this church. Which means. If I'm only allowed eight Sundays off, then I would expect nobody else is missing that much. I expect people to be reading and studying with the purpose of teaching. We're supposed to make disciples. Now, I do it on Sunday mornings. I have an avenue, a platform where I teach on Sunday mornings. But I would expect Jake to be studying scripture in such a way where he's passing it on to somebody else. I would expect us to be able to provide godly wisdom to each other, to, to study faithfully. We're all called to study faithfully. To be disciplined in our time, to pray, to encourage struggling believers, to be pursuing discipleship, to affirm godly qualities in others. To be willing to serve when there's an opportunity. To be a part of following through with church discipline, because it certainly doesn't fall just on the pastor. It falls on everybody in a church when that really happens. I expect all of the men in our church to lead their families well. I expect us to all be involved in teachings, because actually in the New Testament, when error and when false teaching creeps into the church, the members are held responsible for that. Not just the leadership. I expect all of us to have a, pr- a good perspective on frivolous entertainment. I expect all of us to be able to counsel each other. What I'm suggesting is, is that I want to make sure that the schedule that I try to hold spiritually is not on some level that you guys can't attain. Now what I mean by that is that 
I could easily overwork myself as the pastor of this church and try to work in such a way like I'm a full-time pastor. Full-time pastor can meet with people all the time. Full-time pastor, if need be, can, um, can meet with people every day of the week for discipleship, for accountability. Guy who's working the real job doesn't always have that time. So Ben mentioned being able to say no. Jack just got stitches and my phone's blowing up about it. Um, I saw Tyson's name, so I thought he was telling me, like, hurry it up or something. Um, Ben says when to say no. What I've got to evaluate is if I'm going to say, Ben, follow my example, it needs to be a legit example that Ben can follow. Which means I can't overdo it as a pastor of Sovereign Hope if it's not the same expectations I would place on Ben. So there may be times when you guys say, hey, can, can we meet or can we go do this? And I say, nah, like, I don't have time for that. What I mean by that is that I don't expect you to have time for that all the time if you're following the example that I'm trying to set. I need you guys to be faithful to put fair expectations on me as the pastor of this church, knowing the example that I'm trying to set for you guys. I'm not trying to be a full-time pastor like other churches. I'm not trying to be a, a pastor who does it all because he gets his salary from the church. I want to be a pastor of this church that sets a legit example for you to follow. How to work your job right. How to do it excellent. How to love your family and serve that family faithfully. Invest in your kids. Give your kids the time they need. Give your spouse the time they need. And also how to follow Jesus in the midst of all those things. Where you're being faithful with the gospel in all those relationships. You're being faithful in the word in the midst of a busy schedule. And you're being faithful to invest in others in this church. I want to be the example for that. And I want you to see the choices that I make with my week as an example that you can follow. Let's pray together.